As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Imagine there's a heaven. The plight of the post-secular. A talk by Carl Schmude at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium. There'll be no attempted singing of Imagine, I can promise you that. Uh... Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's lovely to be here in another colloquium, and uh, thank you to David especially for his great work with the Christopher Dawson Centre. Let me begin with uh, George Orwell and an observation he made in 1944, only a few years before his death. He pondered the cultural impact of a decline of belief in immortality. Do we outlive death? And is there a heaven to reward human beings with eternal happiness? Orwell thought that the belief in personal and individual immortality had been a foundational belief of Western civilization, (coughs) and its fading would have huge consequences. He pointed to such changes as, firstly, a diminished sense of good and evil, as these distinctions became separated from ideas of eternal justice, of eternal damnation, eternal salvation, as a result of how one lived one's earthly life. And secondly, the worship of earthly power that would inevitably arise, he thought, when the sense of an ultimate accountability, of final justice, lessened. If death ends everything, Orwell wrote, it becomes much harder to believe that you can be in the right, even if you are defeated. Western man is not likely, Orwell believed, and I quote, to salvage civilization unless he can evolve a system of good and evil which is independent of heaven and hell. Now, I've begun this uh, paper with George Orwell's judgment of what happens when a culture that has been previously influenced, deeply influenced by religious faith, loses belief. What are the long-term cultural effects of a vanishing religious conviction? In this case, particularly the belief in personal immortality. I think this encapsulates the conditions we increasingly face in Western society, which I'd like to explore today. Orwell was personally not very religious, but he did recognise the need for religion and the implications of a declining belief in personal immortality. His position might be thought similar to that of the British comedy writer Frank Muir, whom some of you would remember from such BBC classic programs as My Word, radio programs, and My Music. And in his closing years, Frank Muir admitted that he was now a lapsed agnostic. He said his doubts had begun to waver. (laughs) Well, God bless him, George Orwell's doubts had also begun to waver. Always the supreme realist, he concluded, one cannot have any worthwhile picture of the future unless one realises how much we have lost by the decay of Christianity. 
Now, the thrust of this paper, ladies and gentlemen, is not to discuss the decay of Christianity so much in our society as to reflect on the condition that has followed it, that of secularism, and to explore the aftermath of a decaying secularism, a secularism in crisis, I think. In his poem, Church Going, in the mid-1950s, the English author Philip Larkin speculated that the death of religious belief would usher in superstition, but that this would be of a fashionable and frivolous kind. In games, as he put it, in riddles and seemingly at random. The randomness of superstition, lurching from one fashionable, obsessive cause to another, was at odds with religion, which by contrast offers order and consistency and permanence. But eventually, Larkin goes on to suggest, superstition, like belief, must die. And what then is left? What remains, he wrote in this poem, when disbelief is gone? Once religion and superstition have lapsed, is there anything more to disbelieve? What will happen if secularism weakens? and ceases to be triumphant? And what will the emerging era of the post-secular look like? Are we now entering an age in which man's alienation from God has turned into man's alienation from himself, so that he no longer recognises there's anything fixed and transcendentally true and ultimate about human nature? In practice, of course, I think the dissolving of beliefs, such a notable feature of a secularist age, the dissolving of beliefs is far more likely to usher in new beliefs, however temporary, to fill the void. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so does a society. Human beings are natural believers. A chronic state of suspended belief finally does not work. It's not a satisfying substitute either for religious belief or even its secular equivalents and successes, which are always earthly ideologies of one kind or another, whether based on class superiority, as with Marxism, or racial purity, as with Nazism, or gender fluidity, as with the current brand of sexual identity politics. The patron of our centre, Christopher Dawson, used to distinguish between an ideology and a faith. An ideology, he thought, is intended to fulfil the same sociological functions as a religious faith and provide a psychological basis of a new social unity, but in fact it lacks any sustainable spiritual power because it doesn't correspond to a genuine transcendental reality. It stirs transcendental yearnings, but it cannot ultimately satisfy them. It promotes the worship of false gods, which will fail. And the experience ends in tears, and often savagely. It's hard to avoid the impression of an endless gullibility in a secularised culture, expressed so well in the insight often attributed to G.K. Chesterton, although never readily and fully traced, that when people cease to believe in God, 
they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. Now, I've invoked in the subtitle of this paper the term post-secular. The prefix post uh, highlights the rapid cultural shifts now taking place, which lead us to think in terms of a passing condition and a lost era. We're used to hearing that we live in a post-Christian age. More recently, we've been told that our age is post-politics, as unconventional figures like Donald Trump and Emmanuel Macron, without much political experience, rise unexpectedly to political power. And we are also post-truth, as our political and media culture resorts to emotional pleading and personal fantasising, impervious to facts and informed arguments. Well, are we still living in a post-Christian time? I think we're rapidly moving beyond that phase. Post-Christian suggests, at least to me, that we're continuing to define our culture in religious terms, in relation to the Christian faith. Even if we're now living in the midst of religious abandonment on a large and accelerating scale, the current social and political dominance surely lies with secularism. And yet I believe it too is failing because it does not correspond to the nature of human beings and their most profound needs. In fact, the fundamental error, as Pope John Paul II once said of socialism, is anthropological in nature. That it is seeing the human person in a material and mechanistic way, devoid of any higher purpose or value that transcends death. Very themes that Campbell addressed so capably this afternoon. We're becoming stranded in a spiritual wasteland. Insofar as our culture remains captive to secularism, it's difficult not to foresee its demise, and sooner rather than later. As the editor of the American journal First Things, R.R. Reno, uh, recently noted, and I quote, secular progressivism may seem powerful, but it is losing its hold. Many half recognise its rotten consequences, he said. Widespread divorce, broken families, drug use, suicide. The defenders of the secular progressive status quo are increasingly hysterical as their status begins to fade. So how might we define the post-secular age? I'd like to look in the time available at just two major dimensions of this age that I think we're now entering. The first one is defined by the growing crisis of liberalism. Liberalism, I think, is the underlying philosophy of the cultural dominance of secularism. It has developed from being a social condition and is now with increasing intensity being imposed as a political ideology. Much has been written, of course, in recent years on the crisis of liberalism, both as an intellectual movement and an agent of cultural change. The question's now being seriously asked, I think, has the liberal dream reached a stage of exhaustion so that it can no longer provide cultural inspiration and political underpinning or direction? Is this the end of the, of the Enlightenment experiment? launched in 18th century Europe, by which the detachment of earthly reason from a universe 
of transcendental faith has led finally to the discarding of reason itself. Has it produced a culture, apparently rational, based on science, that has confused means with ends, so that free speech has not led, as had been envisaged, to fulfilling the purpose of free speech, which is the pursuit and proclamation of truth, but has reached the parlous state of jeopardising the very concept of truth, objective truth. Pontius Pilate's famous question, what is truth, has come again to haunt us. In his recent book, Why Liberalism Failed, Patrick Deneen, who's an American political scientist, focuses on the social and political fallout from liberalism. He argues that it abounds in contradictions, and he mentions three in particular. First, while it proclaims equal opportunities and rights, it actually fosters inequality by its overemphasis on the individual. Second, while its legitimacy depends on consent, it undermines consent because it discourages civic commitments and communal loyalties in favour of personal rights and privacy. And third, while it pursues individual freedom and autonomy, it has in practice given rise to the most comprehensive system of state control in human history. Now, Deneen is not the first to detect the fundamental contradictions in liberalism. More than a century ago, for example, in 1905, G.K. Chesterton offered one such prophecy of the ultimate effects of liberalism. And T.S. Eliot provided another in 1940. Eliot noted the tendency for modern liberal democracies to make up for their inner emptiness by embracing a system of external intrusion and legal enforcement that would be inevitably totalitarian, he thought, in its effects. And I quote, that liberalism may be a tendency towards something very different from itself is a possibility in its nature. For it is something which tends to release energy, he said, rather than accumulate it, to relax rather than to fortify. By destroying traditional social habits of the people, by dissolving their natural collective consciousness into individual constituents, by licensing the opinions of the most foolish, he couldn't have lived in 2018, surely, by substituting instruction for education, by encouraging cleverness rather than wisdom, the upstart rather than the qualified, by fostering a notion of getting on, to which the alternative is a hopeless apathy, liberalism can prepare the way for that which is its own negation, the artificial, mechanised or brutalised control which is a desperate remedy for its chaos. Well, to return to Patrick Deneen, his most striking insight, I think, is that liberalism is failing not because it has fallen short, but because it has been true to itself. It has been fabulously and destructively successful, and it is a victim of its own success. It is now being consumed by its own contradictions. 
and the social and political order it has, it has shaped is now imploding. In becoming more fully itself, it has given rise to various personal and social and even political disorders that it is assumed can only be cured by an ever more concerted resort to liberal solutions. The fundamental mistakes of liberalism, particularly about the nature of human beings and the meaning of human life, its fundamentally defective anthropology, has, is leading to an illiberal and dehumanised society. And this is despite a selective sentimentality that masquerades as compassion, extinguishing the beginning of life with abortion and the end of life with euthanasia. Such sentimentality disguises the lurch of liberalism into barbarism, having abandoned a culture of civilised care for all human beings, especially the most vulnerable, which it inherited from Christianity. In a paradox worthy of G.K. Chesterton, liberalism is failing, argues Deneen, because it is succeeding. Now, Deneen sees a number of areas in which liberalism is living out its contradictions. Let me, in the time available, highlight just one of these briefly, and that is the impact on education, and specifically on the liberal arts. Liberalism has effectively dismantled education as the expression of a culture's belief in itself and its desire to transmit its cultural inheritance across generations. It has ceased to see the liberal arts as a liberating education, as the education of a free citizen who can participate in the life of a democracy rather than as a functioning cog in a productivity machine. Liberalism, Deneen argues, has detached education from culture, certainly the culture of the mainstream the shared memories and loyalties of a people. Its exalting of the autonomy of the individual has stifled the capacity for shared learning and communal experience, which has to involve the sacrifice of personal desires for the good of the other. Now, should we blame so much on liberalism? Am I, am I being unfair, ladies and gentlemen? and uh, disproportionate in my criticisms here. By this time, you may feel a slight twinge of sympathy for such a noble but lost cause. Let me try to assuage any such misplaced feelings that, uh, uh, by which you may be tempted and look at the second dimension of life in a post-secular age, which is itself a profound consequence of liberalism, and that is in human relations and especially the relations between men and women. The most damaged and confused area of life, which a post-secular culture has to face, it seems to me, is social and sexual mores. I think this penetrates to the heart of the human. We're all aware of the vast loosening of manners and morals that has taken place, really in a single lifetime. Well, my single lifetime. <laughs> Let me offer a few brief comments on the social and sexual effects of liberalism as a way of understanding at the most intimate level the challenges facing a post-secular culture. In the first place, social and sexual liberalism has taken away the protective armoury of courtesies 
and constraints that traditionally governed relations between men and women. This code of conduct developed over many centuries and found its most notable expression in the medieval cult of chivalry, a social code of behaviour that was a blend of uh, a natural sensibility of service and a supernatural belief in human honour and dignity, heightened, I think, by the recognition of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a sublime model of womanly inspiration. This culture of consideration had various beneficial effects. It tamed the physical dominance of men, or at least channeled it in more creative directions, such as, uh, in the case of my family, into the noble sport of rugby. It curbed men's more boorish behaviour, at least in the presence of women. And it bolstered, I think, men's protective instincts displayed most gallantly in times of crisis, such as war or other occasions when human lives were threatened, as in evacuating from a sinking ship. We think of the cry, women and children first, most commonly associated with the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. Yet men's protective instincts were also manifest in more mundane ways, such as a husband's care for his wife and a father's safeguarding of his daughter. Well, I've only to describe this code of chivalry to reveal a vanishing world. How quaint all this sounds in our age of sexual freedom and exhibitionism. Courtesy is now more likely to be thought to be patronising to women and not a requirement for men. But the passing of chivalry has had an ambiguous fallout. It has, as the British author Peter Hitchens has noticed, led to confusion among men as to how they should relate to women. Hitchens notes uh, the phenomenon of the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson, now something of a celebrity, uh, whose most powerful appeal is to young men, mainly because, Hitchens says, those young men cannot work out how to behave correctly towards modern young women. These young women's minds, Hitchens believes, have been trained to mistrust masculinity. But in their hearts, he concludes, they still despise feeble, feminised men. There's also evidence that women are confused. The columnist for the Australian newspaper, Angela Shanahan, has argued that many girls and young adult women are now less sure of their identity and status. They're now torn between whether to live out the role of equality with men and be recognised as strong and capable individuals, or to accept that they are victims, helpless and vulnerable and unable to cope, and assumed always to be the innocent party in relationships that go wrong. These dilemmas, of course, have achieved recent prominence by the celebrity scandals in Hollywood and even here in Australia. They've also been highlighted by the allegations of widespread sexual harassment and assault in university residential colleges. In recent years, uh, I've chaired the board of one such college, accommodating over 300 students, men and women, 
and uh, gain some insight into the confused relations that have now developed between young men and women. For the most part, school leavers, freed from the constraints of school and parental supervision, and living together for the first time in a close social environment. University colleges, I think, are a concentrated example of how the new social codes promoted by the sexual revolution work in practice and where they're leading. The early expectation nurtured in Western society since the 1960s and intensified by the feminist revolution was that widespread contraception and legal abortion would guarantee women's equality with men in the bedroom as well as the workplace. These served to replace the old social order, which valued chastity and disdained premarital and extramarital sex, and set clear expectations about the practice of dating among the young and the nature of courtship when relationships became serious. In a recent interview, Richard Walsh, a founder of the satirical magazine Oz in the 1960s, admitted to serious misgivings about the effects, the long-term effects, of the destruction of this traditional culture of sexual mores. He referred especially to the justification it gave males, including one of the magazine's co-founders, Martin Sharp, to engage in sex with underage girls and with boys. We have accepted, Walsh said, that young people are free to explore their sexuality. But in getting there, we have gone down some very dark alleys. The withering of this traditional culture of respect has meant that campaigns on university campuses to deter bad behaviour, such as one called Respect Now Always, have an uphill battle to succeed since they're appealing to virtues and values that very sadly the sexual revolution has largely destroyed. Moreover, the weakening of this culture has had a strange result, highlighted in a recent documentary film in America called The Dating Project. The film follows five young adults who are struggling with the dilemmas of dating in a hypersexualized age conditioned by social media and texting, and in which the hookup culture has hijacked dating and the steady building of a relationship. The result is, at an early stage, physical and emotional intimacy is expected, if not demanded, by one or other parties, and courtship falls by the wayside. The film is based on a class taught by a philosophy professor at Boston College, Kerry Cronin. She noticed that the students she encountered in her philosophy classes did not engage in dating because they had no idea how to go about it. So she set them an unconventional assignment, go on a date. The students had great difficulty completing the assignment. A popular illustration of the workings of this traditional culture is the Jane Austen novels. The New Zealand journalist Carolyn Moynihan has noted that these novels focus a light on the deep realities that characterise the relations between men and women. Austen depicts the happiness of her characters 
has been closely bound up with marriage, with the creation of a stable environment for sexual intimacy, which gives purpose and meaning to such intimacy, connecting it with the generation of new life and happiness, the happiness of raising a family. In Austen's novels, when men display a patronising sense of entitlement based on class or wealth or power, as in Pride and Prejudice, we think of the marriage proposals which the patronising Mr Collins and the self-important Mr Darcy make to the heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, Jane Austen make clear to her readers some crucial lessons. As Carolyn Moynihan perceptively points out, Elizabeth Bennet shows a strong sense of self-worth and self-confidence that enables her to resist such male advances, not out of being threatened, but out of a respect for her own dignity, acknowledged by male and female alike. To quote Carolyn Moynihan, outside of marriage, she says, sex is all ambiguity, insecurity, and even danger to physical, emotional and mental well-being, risks that are magnified for the children born of uncommitted relationships. This is why marriage, in Moynihan's words, is a central motif of classical romantic comedy. It's the idea, ideal, sorry, the ideal on which the plot turns and which it ultimately fulfills where all events, both negative and positive, contribute to the heroines finally marrying the right person for her. A similar set of norms can be seen in the cable TV series When Calls the Heart, a period drama set in the Canadian frontier in the early 20th century. The central story is a ripening romance between a high society city teacher assigned to a remote town in the Canadian Rockies and a Mountie from a rural background. My interest was sparked by the fact that the Mountie is played by an Australian actor, Daniel Lissing. But in time I became intrigued by the storylines, the impressive acting and the solid but unstuffy emphasis on virtue as a crucial basis of happiness. There's one item of special interest related to our present reflections, and that is the way in which the teacher and the Mountie, who at first argue and do not get on, grow to like and admire each other, then fall in love and finally marry. For me, the series When Calls the Heart reveals how a serious and potentially lasting relationship culminating in marriage develops over time. The rituals of courtship are observed faithfully as an integrated part of the culture, applied by the cultural expectation of mutual respect, not because they are legally prescribed and enforced. Whereas our age has reacted with a Me Too campaign, the cure which we see in the Jane Austen novels and When Calls the Heart is one of us two, not Me Too. Unless we can rebuild, I think, a collaborative culture which inhibits as well as inspires, we have to accept that legal sanctions enforced by state authorities, the courts and government agencies and the structures of political intervention will always be a lame substitute. They cannot possibly correspond to the depths of feeling 
and enchantment that sexual intimacy involves. And since a legal redress comes after any event, it's hardly likely to be an effective deterrent at the time. It's a catch-up morality at best. As legal forces and structures take over from clear cultural pathways and religious principles, the effect is inescapably to bestow more power on the state. And while this may not disturb those who believe that every problem can be solved with more government assistance and therefore intervention and more laws and imposed regulation, the result in practice is problematic. And when the tide changes, as it inevitably will, the controls imposed by the state for curbing so-called conservative desires and prejudices will, because these controls are entrenched, end up turning against liberal progressives. As they say, every dog has its day, and be careful what you wish for. A key issue, of course, is how the fracturing of relationships between men and women has affected the family, making it more and more dysfunctional and progressively eroding it. The family, of course, is the institution that has been most gravely undermined. As Chesterton said, as recently as 1920, without the family, we are helpless before the state. Mm. The fragmentation of family life is producing a rather loveless society. How do we find a way out of it and deal with the plight of the post-secular? I think we have to imagine our way out of it. Certainly we need to take account of our cultural situation and we might ask where a revival of religious faith might occur. In global terms, as we know, the West is now anomalous in losing its faith and abandoning Christianity, with the odd exception of such countries as Poland and Hungary. The rest of the world in the main is becoming more religious, including more Christian. But might the seeds of faith be re-sown in the West despite the seemingly rocky and unpromising ground at present. Christopher Dawson pointed out that in the early Christian centuries, it was not the educated elite or the peasants who proved to be responsive to the overtures of Christianity. St Paul preached in Athens to a sophisticated Hellenist public and to a simple peasant population in Asia Minor, but neither proved particularly responsive. Rather, it was in the great cities of the ancient world, at Antioch and Corinth and Rome, that the fruits of Christian preaching and the witness of martyrs were most in evidence. Looking to the possibilities for our age, and Dawson wrote this back in the 1950s, he asked whether the key points of Oriental Christianity will be found in the great urban centres like Calcutta and Bombay, Tokyo, Shanghai, Canton, Singapore, that the new churches will find their future leaders in the same urban cosmopolitan classes from which the leaders of the primitive church were drawn. Will this kind of development open up a pathway for Asia and by extension Africa as well and provide a source of evangelical energy and conversion for a post-secular West? 
Certainly in a small but decisive way, this is happening in the Catholic Church in Australia, where priests from Africa and Asia especially increasingly care for our parishes. On the other hand, perhaps at this historical moment, the West lacks, above all, an openness to the imagination. In fact, our cultural failure at present, it seems to me, is in part a failure of the imagination. The imagination of the post-secular is starved of truth and inspiration that transcend space and time and resist the illusory hopes in which we have long been prone to indulge. Can we find a way out of the abyss of the post-secular unless we begin to imagine our way out of it? In short, imagine there is a heaven. We don't hear much about heaven these days. When the Australian uh, Catholic author and publisher Frank Sheed was asked to preach a sermon on one occasion at a church in New York, he decided to speak on heaven. So that, he said, I should not die without ever having heard one. <laughs> well, can we imagine what heaven might be like as a spiritual destiny, a spiritual home that satisfies our deepest longings? Now, this is not to conjure up a fantasy. It's to use the imagination to connect with reality. As Chesterton put it in The Everlasting Man, as he traced the human story and the historical impact of Christ as a divine entering the human, we must invoke, he said, the most wild and soaring sort of imagination, the imagination that can see what is there. In trying to imagine heaven, we might look first, of course, at the Christian Gospels in which Christ himself uses the imagination in the form of parables to depict heaven. The parable of the mustard seed, for example, illustrates that the seed, the smallest seed, planted in the earth, sprouts and produces a great harvest. So the glorious destination of heaven has totally inconspicuous beginnings and is beyond our sensory experience, as St Paul made clear. Eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has in store for those who love him. Among modern attempts to imagine heaven might be C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Published in 1946, it is a theological fantasy, which his friend J.A.R. Tolkien called a moral allegory or vision based on a medieval idea, quoting Tolkien again, by which lost souls have an occasional holiday in paradise, a holiday from hell, as it were. The book allowed Lewis to explore the crucial differences between heaven and hell, as well as between heaven and earth. Lewis depicts heaven as, quote, reality itself. All that is fully real, he says, is heavenly. If we prefer earth to heaven, we will eventually find, he says, that it has been all along only a region of hell. And if we put earth second to heaven, we will find that it has been an intimation of heaven. From the beginning, as Lewis puts it, a part of heaven itself. Finally, however, for ordinary people, conditioned as we are by our senses, 
I suspect that the best way to imagine heaven is to receive concrete intimations of it. And for me, this means the experience of being with a saint. Thank you, Virginia. It's been a wonderful nearly 50 years of marriage. (laughs) But I, I am just for a moment going to talk about another saint. I've long been impressed and was ultimately surprised by the religious conversion of the British journalist and media personality, Malcolm Muggridge. He had a highly secularist upbringing and cherished the hope of a secular paradise, believing in the 1930s, like so many intellectuals at the time, that the Soviet Union was just such a utopia. By the 1960s, Muggridge had moved from being a disillusioned agnostic to a belief in the promises of Christ and the profession of a Christian faith, albeit of a fairly personal and even idiosyncratic kind. But the decisive stage in his conversion, I think, which led in his case finally to his reception and that of his wife Kitty into the Catholic Church, was his meeting Mother Teresa of Calcutta. The inspiration of a living saint A fresh sighting of Christ, as it were, proved irresistible. It would not be hard to imagine heaven in such a presence. Mother Teresa did not defeat his scepticism with arguments. She transcended it with goodness. In the opening scene of Georges Beninosa's 1936 novel, The Diary of a Country Priest, later made into a movie by Robert Bresson, the priest describes the spiritual desolation of his parish, how it has been eaten up by boredom. He's horribly aware of his people's loneliness, as well as his own. And one evening he goes up on a hillside and looks out over his village, struggling to find hope. Later he receives a glimmer of promise about his parish. Last night, he says, I believe a saint might have roused it. Well, could a saint rouse our people again? Can we imagine a heaven? Perhaps our last question is, can we afford not to? Thank you very much. That was Carl Schmuder with... Imagine There's a Heaven, the plight of the post-secular. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2018 Colloquium on the theme, A World Without Christianity, which was hosted in Hobart, Australia. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.